0: bibles up to mark chapter 10 this morning and we're going to finish up our series on discipleship mark chapter 10 and we'll be at the very end of mark 10 this morning um, but i'm going to have you flip around a little bit in the gospel of mark as you're turning there this is obvious but i want to say it we make sense of the world around us We understand reality because and through the use of our senses, through your five senses. I mean, you see things, you hear things, you touch things, you taste things. That's how we make sense. We engage with reality, with the world around us, using our senses, right? Obvious enough. Okay, now, if you were given a new sense, I don't even know what that would be, (laughs) but if you were given a sixth sense you would engage with the world entirely differently. Everything would, would be turned on its head in one way or another. And it would, it's hard to even fathom that. That's why I say I don't even know what it would be like to have a sixth sense because we're so used to engaging with the world with our five senses. Our daily experience tells us that's how we know things, that's how we experience things, right? But that's for those of us that have all five of our senses functioning at least somewhat properly, but if you only had four of those five working correctly, if you were to suddenly receive your fifth sense and you'd never experienced it before, it would turn everything on its head. And what I'm talking about is going from being blind to being able to see. Obviously, everything would be different at that point. Your entire world would be dramatically different. Just imagine that for a second. I read recently, I was reading a novel and was reading about the time when surgeons and doctors were just beginning to understand how to do cataract surgery safely. I don't even know when this was, probably a while ago, but they're just figuring out how to do cataract surgery safely. And there were people who had never been able to see at all and who suddenly were receiving the gift of sight. They could do the surgery, and they would wake up from the surgery, and now their entire world has changed. They have been given that fifth sense that they never were able to experience before. And there are all sorts of, honestly, crazy things that happen when someone who's never been able to see suddenly comes to the point where they can see. And one of those, it was a difficulty. When you've never been able to see, you have no ability to gauge depth perception. And you have no ability to understand space and how far that back wall is from me right now or how far I am from you right now. You have never experienced that. And so you have no ability to be able to do that. And so your world is very small when you're born blind and you can't see and everything is gauged by touch and by smell, and by hearing. And so you don't realize how big even your house is or how big the field in front of you is. You have no concept of something being hundreds of yards away. And one doctor described the experience, it's kind of humorous, of a patient who received the gift of sight and could not understand initially depth perception. Here's what he said. He practiced his vision in a strange fashion. Thus, he takes off one of his boots throws it some way off in front of him, and then attempts to gauge the distance at which it lies. He takes a few steps towards the boot and tries to grasp it. On failing to reach it, he moves on a step or two and gropes for the boot until he finally gets a hold of it. Now that seems odd, but just imagine what it would be like to suddenly receive sight and no ability to, to be able to tell space and depth. His understanding of reality had dramatically altered and dramatically changed in that instant. And I I tell you that to try to get you to sense and understand how amazing it is and, and how appropriate the picture of a blind man receiving sight is for the moment of salvation and for the moment of us beginning our journey of discipleship. In that moment, everything changes. Reality is different. You hopefully see everything differently. And it's a very appropriate picture of that moment when you begin the journey of discipleship and of faith. It's like a blind man receiving sight. Now, the same author described not the difficulties this time of receiving sight, but the absolute joy of what it was like for some of these blind people who had been living for 20 or 30 or 40 years without sight to suddenly receive their sight, the sheer wonder and joy of that experience. And I'm going to read you a pretty big chunk here of what that was like, and I want you to listen closely. And as I read this, I want you to listen to how these patients are attempting to put into words how their reality has changed, all right? Here's here's what it says. On the other hand... Many newly sighted people speak well of the world and teach us how dull is our own vision. To one patient, a human hand, unrecognized, is, quote, something bright and then holes. Shown a bunch of grapes, a boy calls out, it is dark, blue, and shiny. It isn't smooth. It has bumps and hollows. A little girl visits a garden. Can you imagine that experience for the first time? She is greatly astonished and can scarcely be persuaded to answer. Stands speechless in front of the tree, which she only names on taking hold of it, and then as, quote, the tree with the lights in it. Some delight in their sight and give themselves over to the visual world. Of a patient just after her bandages were removed, her doctor writes, the first things to attract her attention were her own hands. She looked at them very closely, moved them repeatedly to and fro, bent and stretched the fingers, and seemed greatly astonished at the sight. One girl was eager to tell her blind friend that men do not really look like trees at all. And astounded to discover that her every visitor had an utterly different face. Finally, a 22-year-old girl was dazzled by the world's brightness and kept her eyes shut for two weeks. When at the end of that time she opened her eyes again, she did not recognize the objects. But the more she now directed her gaze upon everything about her, the more it could be seen How an expression of gratification and astonishment overspread her features. She repeatedly exclaimed, oh God, how beautiful. The gift of physical sight is beautiful. And it's completely life-altering if you've never had it before. And the gift of spiritual sight is even more beautiful and more life-altering if you've never had it before. Now, over the last couple of months, we've been in this section of the gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 8, out verse 22, all the way through the end of Mark chapter 10. And this whole section, as you've heard me say repeatedly, is dedicated to discipleship. It's what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ and to begin that journey. And what's amazing, I think, is that this whole section begins with the story of a blind man being healed. And you're going to see today, this section ends with the story of a blind man being healed. And that is not accidental. Mark was not haphazard when he did that. And we're meant to read this entire section with those two stories bookending this section. We're meant to read this as the story of the disciples of Jesus wrestling with their inability to see who Jesus really is. They are blind And Christ is teaching so that they can gain their spiritual sight. And that's what this section is about. Look back at Mark chapter 8 and verse 18. Mark 8 verse 18. This is where Jesus identifies the issue with the disciples. He says to them, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? They don't see really, truly who he is. And then then Mark goes right into this story of the blind man. Look at verse 22 of chapter 8. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking partial sight. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. The disciples are like this blind man. They're they're partially seeing. They're kind of there. They know Jesus is the Messiah, sort of, but they don't understand all the ramifications of that for their own lives as disciples. And they don't understand the ramifications of that even for Jesus and what that means for his coming suffering and his coming death. They see partially, but Jesus is explaining and teaching so that they will come to see fully who he is. Now flip over to Mark chapter 10, and this is where we're going to be this morning. Mark 10 and verse 46, the last story in this section. And notice how this story begins. It's the exact same wording as that previous story of the blind man. And they came to just a different location, Jericho. And so Mark wants you to see both of these stories as the bookends to the section on discipleship. Same wording, new location, but the point is the same. Jesus is going to reveal himself to them and give them spiritual sight. They will eventually come to see clearly who he is. And as we read this story today, I think we need to read this story as what it looks like to go from blindness to spiritual sight. We're meant to learn from this man. I think he's the model disciple for us. He's an example. This is a fitting conclusion to this entire section on discipleship because this guy is the model for what true discipleship looks like. There are qualifications, or there are qualities that we learn from this guy that as disciples of Christ we ought to imitate in our own lives. We learn from how this man responded to Jesus and what he did after he received his sight as well. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And when we receive spiritual sight, it's just like that girl I talked about a minute ago. The response is how beautiful to know who Jesus is. And then the result of following him comes naturally. So this morning, here's what we're going to look at. Four qualities Of a blind man given sight. We're going to learn them from this guy here. Short little story. Four qualities of a blind man given sight that mark true disciples. So four qualities of a blind man given sight that mark true disciples. And the first one of these qualities is that this guy knows his need. He knows his need. And let's get into this story. Look at verse 46. We saw this already. But they came to Jericho. Now, if you've been with us, you know Jesus is on a journey with his disciples. He started north of Galilee, and he's been journeying slowly south. They've crossed the River Jordan to the east side of the Jordan, and they've headed down. They've had all these experiences, and Jesus has taught them along the way what it means to be a disciple. But now they've crossed back over the Jordan River, and they're heading closer and closer to Jerusalem which is the ultimate destination. It's where he will suffer and die. They crossed over Jordan and they've come to Jericho. Now I'm going to put a little map up here. I know you probably can't see that real well, but you see the Dead Sea, that body of water at the bottom there. Jericho is just north of the Dead Sea on the western side of the river Jordan. And that's the horizontal arrow. The angled arrow is pointing toward Jerusalem. So at least, if nothing else, you can see that Jericho is pretty close to Jerusalem. And the disciples and Jesus have reached Jericho. And Jericho is about 20 miles from Jerusalem, so really only a day's journey from Jerusalem. And they come here, they go through the city, and look back at verse 46. They came up to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus was sitting by the roadside. So they're coming out of the other side of the city. They're beginning to make the ascent up to Jerusalem. They're going uphill now to go toward Jerusalem. And as they come out, they encounter this man, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar. Now, In this journey of discipleship, Jesus and the disciples have encountered other individuals, one in particular. Remember the rich young ruler back in chapter 10 who they encountered? This guy, the rich young ruler, would have been the perfect addition, at least in the minds of the disciples. He would have been the perfect addition to their group. This guy was primed and ready to be a follower. He was rich. He was powerful. He was morally upright. And he was interested in eternal life. And so all of these things indicated to the disciples that this guy was a perfect candidate to become a follower of Jesus. That's not the case with Bartimaeus. This guy is on the opposite end of the social ladder. He's blind. And this blindness probably would have indicated to the disciples and certainly to other people that he was under some sort of judgment from God. And that's the reason he was sick. Either he or his parents had done something to bring this upon him. And he was poor. If the disciples considered riches a sign of God's blessing, then someone who was stuck in poverty to the point of being a beggar would certainly have been under some sort of judgment from God. And so this guy was on the opposite end of the social ladder. He's begging, quite clearly poor. But what's so instructive for you and I about this guy is that he knows the position he's in and he knows his need. And I think we're meant to learn that from him. Look at verse 47. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. No doubt he'd heard of Jesus before. He'd heard about the miracles Remember, in the Gospel of Mark, word about Jesus had spread all over Israel. And so Bartimaeus had heard people talking about Jesus of Nazareth. And he knows his own need. And he realizes that this guy is walking close enough for him to get his attention. And so he begins screaming out to get Jesus's attention. Now, the full force of that word, it, it says in, your, in the ESV to cry out. And I use the word screaming out. This is a very strong word, all right? This is the word that Mark uses to describe demons screaming out. And you don't think of demons screaming out as just having a loud voice, okay? This guy, he is freaking out here. This is what you do if you're on a desert island and a helicopter goes overhead and you're deserted there, Right? I mean, you go nuts (laughs) to try to get their attention. And that's what Bartimaeus was doing here. He's not casually calling out for an audience with Jesus. Look at verse 48. Must get on people's nerves. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But look how he responds. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. I don't know why people told him to be quiet. Maybe they were annoyed with him. Maybe they thought Jesus was on his way. He was heading out of the city. Didn't have time for this blind beggar. Probably what it was. But either way, he ups the volume level. He goes even more nuts trying to get Jesus's attention. He's begging for him to take pity on him. He asks for mercy, something I do not deserve that is given to me just out of sheer kindness and grace. You'll notice here, too, that Bartimaeus says something. He gives Jesus a title that is very specific. Look there. In verse 47 and 48, he calls him the son of David. Now, we'll circle back to this in a few minutes, but I just want you to take note of that title there because it is significant. It is important. And in the meantime, before we get there, I want to talk about his obvious sense of desperation here. When people tell him to be quiet, he... Goes, even, goes after it even harder. He knows his own need. He recognizes it. He's poor. He's blind. He's fully aware that this is his only shot. If he's going to receive sight, this is it. Now compare this sense of desperation here to the, the man earlier in chapter 10, the rich young ruler. And we don't know exactly what his mindset was, but it seems like... He thought, man, I'm pretty close anyway. I've kept all of these commandments. I'm doing a pretty good job here. He's interested, but he's not desperate. Bartimaeus is desperate. He knows the situation he's in. Now, earlier, I talked about how the experience of becoming a follower of Christ is having blind eyes open and seeing the world through through new eyes, seeing the world in a fresh way. You have a whole new sense of reality when you become a follower of Christ. It's a complete reorientation of who you are. And the, the very first part of that reorientation is coming to grips with your own need. That's the starting point here. It's seeing yourself exactly as needy as you are, seeing yourself as a blind beggar. It's seeing yourself as in need of mercy because of your own sin. People often talk about the big questions of life, right? Who am I being one of those big questions? Who are we as human beings? What is this thing that we all are human being? And that's an important question. And we want to answer that question correctly so that we perceive the world correctly. And the the right answer to that question is that I am a human made in God's image who has been blinded and broken by sin. That is the starting point, And recognizing that need is the first step here. And that's what Bartimaeus does. And it's a heavy weight to bear. To recognize that I am blinded and broken by sin, but I will not cry out for sight and for help until I know that situation that I'm in until I'm desperate. But what's interesting here is he doesn't stop with the recognition that he is blind and you and I cannot stop with that recognition either. That understanding of our brokenness should drive us to the one who can heal our brokenness, who can give us sight. We don't stop by acknowledging that we're sinners. We go beyond that to the next step. That recognition drives us to the mercy and love of Jesus Christ. And that's our second quality. He knows his need and he knows God's love. We must turn in our sinfulness to him and acknowledge that we need his love. If asking the question, who am I, causes us to rightly assess ourselves as blind, sinful beggars, Then the next big question, what is God like, is something we have to deal with and we have to come to grips with. If I'm a sinner, then what is God like? How does he respond to my sin? Is he angry, bloodthirsty, vindictive God? Is he constantly fed up with me and frustrated with his creation? Well, he certainly doesn't allow sin in his holy presence, but it's because of sin that Jesus Christ came to earth took on the form of a man to redeem sinful men and to purchase their freedom from their sin. It's because of God's love for his creation that he sent Jesus Christ. And so our sin should drive us to that point where we begin to understand and to recognize the great mercy and grace of God towards sinful people. God is willing and able to extend mercy to those who see that they are blind. Bartimaeus begs Jesus for mercy here in verses 47 and 48. And notice how Jesus responds in verse 49. Look there. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And the crowd reverses course here, right? They're not rebuking him anymore. Now it's a completely different response to him. And they called the blind man saying to him, take heart, get up. He is calling you. What's amazing here is Jesus is making this journey. He's got all these people around him, this entourage of disciples and the crowd around him. And Bartimaeus is the least important person available. He's a blind beggar sitting by the road and Jesus stops because he is calling to him and he looks at him and he responds specifically to Bartimaeus. He gives him his full attention. And that's what this means here. And with that sort of response, with that sort of mercy that Bartimaeus knows he's going to receive, the response of verse 50 makes sense. Look there. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Makes perfect sense that he would do that there. And so those who follow Jesus need to recognize their need, but they also need to know that there is a Savior. A Savior whose love is so great that it brought him to earth to die for them. And you can't be rescued from blindness unless you have someone who is able to heal you from blindness, who has the mercy and the power to heal. And you can't be rescued from sin unless you have someone who has the mercy and the love and the power to forgive and to cleanse you from sin. And so if you take both of those together, a right perception of self in our sinfulness and our brokenness, and a right perception of God in his grace and in his love towards sinful human beings expressed through Jesus Christ, self-perception and God-perception, if you put both of those together, you end up with our third quality, which is faith. He believes God's son. Right self-perception, right God-perception equals faith. Look at verse 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now, you have seen this question before, haven't you? What do you want me to do for you? That's the exact same question that Jesus asked James and John when they came to him saying, Jesus, we want you to do something for us. This was just a, a chapter or in chapter 10. Uh, I think it was last week we talked about this. Jesus, we want you to do something for us. And then he asked them this. It's the exact same question. But I want you to notice the entirely different response from James and John and from Bartimaeus here. Look back at chapter 10 in verse 37. Here's James and John's response. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. They're seeking glory. They're thinking about self. They're concerned for a place of honor in Christ's kingdom. Now, look at Bartimaeus' response here in verse 51. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. You would think a blind man would ask for alms. I need some money to get some food because I can't work. That's what you would expect here. But instead, he asks to be healed. And you don't ask an ordinary man. You don't ask someone who you think is just another guy on the street to heal you. So he obviously believed something was significant about Jesus. And as we've already seen, he gave him the title back in verses 47 and 48, son of David. So Bartimaeus has a specific belief about who Jesus is. Twice he calls them this. So why? Why does he call him this? this title connects to his request for mercy. So he believes there's something about this title and who he thinks Jesus is that gives Jesus the power and the ability to show him mercy. They go together. Well, this is the first time we've seen this title in the gospel of Mark and he uses it twice in two verses and we'll only see it one other time in chapter 12 and there Jesus uses it. So What does Bartimaeus believe about Jesus here? Well, obviously this title is connected back to the Old Testament, right? I mean, David is an Old Testament character. And it's connected back to David because in the Old Testament, there are promises that God makes to raise up a descendant of David who will rule and reign over his kingdom forever, and the Old Testament prophets taught us that that individual's kingdom, the son of David, the descendant of David, would bring peace and he would bring prosperity forever and that he would set things right. And so to expect that person was to expect the Messiah, to expect the one who would ultimately bring in God's kingdom and set things right. Listen to how Isaiah predicts this. You know this passage, Christmas time. And so Bartimaeus is, maybe doesn't have this text in mind, but he's saying, listen, I know, I believe that you are this individual. You are the son of David. You're the one who the prophets talked about. And so when we talk about Bartimaeus' faith, it's not just a faith that says Jesus can heal me. That's not the entirety of what he believes. He believes Jesus can heal him and show him mercy because he's the messianic son of David. It's more than just a hopeful confidence that Christ can do something to heal him. It's the belief that he's the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. It's connected to who Jesus is and not just what he can do. One author put it this way, and I thought this was helpful. To truly see involves faith, to understand that Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. And Bartimaeus probably doesn't know all the details. He doesn't have it all together, but he knows this much. He knows who Jesus is. And Jesus makes that very clear. Look at verse 52. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Jesus identifies it here as faith. He's cast himself, Bartimaeus has cast himself on the Messiah for healing in desperate dependence. And that, according to Jesus, with the belief in who Jesus is, that is faith. Now, what's interesting here in verse, in Christ's response, he says, your faith has. And then that last phrase is one word in the original language. And you can translate that either saved you or given you physical healing. That's how he ends here. So it talks about that word talks about physical healing sometimes, and sometimes it talks about spiritual healing. Now, that's not to say that if you're a believer and if you have spiritual sight that you will receive physical healing in every circumstance. Some people make that mistake and connect those, and that's not what he's saying here. The point here is that in Christ's kingdom that we anticipate in the future, All of this will be made fully and completely right. Physical wholeness will take place. And spiritual freedom from sin will fully and finally take place. And so in Christ's ministry on earth, you have all this physical healing. And that's like an appetizer setting the stage for what it's going to be like in his kingdom and our reception of spiritual salvation right now is also like an appetizer. It's ours. It's secure. It's firm. And it points to the day when we will be completely free from sin and holy in God's presence, enjoying fellowship with him. That's the end game. And this is a foretaste of that. And both of those come through the king, through the Messiah. Now, as we've seen over and over again in this section, you're probably getting tired of me saying this, but when a person comes to Jesus, when they're healed, when they believe in him, the response of discipleship is to give him all that that person has. It's to deny self, take up your cross and follow him. Flip back a couple of pages to chapter eight. I'm going to read you this again. This is how this section essentially began. Chapter 8, verse 34. Once you've received spiritual sight, this is what happens. Verse 34, chapter 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words and this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's the natural response to one who has received sight, and that is our last quality here. When you rightly perceive self as a sinner in need of mercy and grace, and when you rightly perceive God through his son as giving that mercy and grace through his death on the cross and resurrection, when you believe that the natural response, the automatic, we could say, response is to follow him. Look at verse 52. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him. On the way. This comes naturally to Bartimaeus because he has had a fundamental change of his view of reality. His disposition is entirely different now. He has been changed from one who depends on self to one who depends on God. And he immediately follows Jesus on the way. Now, if you look back at the end of verse 52, this is not accidental language here. He says he follows him and he also uses the phrase on the way. Both of those, follow and on the way, both of those are terms, phrases that are used of the process of discipleship throughout these chapters. And so Mark wants us to read this as the ideal. This is what happens when you receive spiritual sight. Jesus has been telling people this throughout this section. We just read it in chapter 8. If you go back to the rich young ruler, what does Christ tell him? Follow me. Sell what you have and follow me. Come after me. Come after him where? On the way. That term has been used throughout this section as well to talk about the journey of following Jesus that culminates in Jerusalem where he will suffer and die. And this man, Bartimaeus, immediately gets on that path with Jesus. His whole life has been altered. Everything's different now. And it's the most natural thing in the world for him to get on the path and to follow Christ. And that's been the point of this entire section, right? We spent a couple of months going through these passages with that as the point. Seeing who Jesus is spiritually, believing him as the Messiah as the son of David leads to a person who follows him, who takes up his cross and denies self because that person's view of reality, their grasp of reality has been changed. They see themselves for who they are. They see God and Christ for who he is. They trust him and they follow anything else would be a denial of his lordship and a continuing to put self on the throne. And that's exactly what we saw with the rich young ruler. He wasn't willing to give up what was most important to him to follow Jesus. Continue to put self on the throne. And the beauty of doing this, of denying self, is all the way back in chapter 8 and verse 35. I'll read it to you again. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's the promise. That's the reward. That's the beauty of following Christ on this pathway. So, what do we do as we finish this up? We allow the Holy Spirit, through the words of the Bible, to give us the right self perception and the right God perception. Let the scriptures shape how you see yourself. Let the scriptures shape how you see Christ and his love. Believe the picture that this gospel gives us of Jesus of Nazareth, this man who lived and who walked and who gathered followers and who died. Let the gospel of Mark shape how you see him and what you believe about him. He is the Davidic Messiah, fulfillment of the Old Testament, God's only son. He died to ransom sinners from enslavement to sin. He did that because of God's great love for us. And when all of that gets put in place, when all of those beliefs are there, difficult as it might be, the only natural outcome is to take up our cross And to follow him, to deny self and to put Christ on the throne of my heart instead of me and my desires. And that's the lesson of this section. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him because he's good and he's worthy and he's full of mercy and full of grace. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for these words. They're not my words. They're not my ideas. This is your word, and we have tried as best we can to understand what you have to say through the scriptures. So help by your Holy Spirit. Help us to see these things as they truly are. Change our self-perception. Change our God perception. Help us to believe in your Son, to believe who he truly is, and then Give us the grace and the ability to follow you on the way, to follow you on the pathway of self-denial and ultimately on the pathway of receiving true life. We thank you for these words. We thank you for your grace and goodness to us. And we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.